Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. For a couple of years now, State Senator Scott Weiner from San Francisco has tried to pass this controversial housing bill. And every time he brought his Senate Bill 50 to lawmakers, it didn't get the votes to pass. And then last week, on his third try, he came really close. But... So Weiner was hoping that finally we could turn the tide and, and challenge the status quo that's dominated state politics for the last three decades. We just didn't have it. SB 50 is really the only proposal so far that might have dramatically changed how housing gets built in the state. So why didn't it pass? I'm Devin Katayama. Welcome to the Bay. Senate Bill 50 by Senator Weiner, an act relating to housing. Senator Weiner, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you very much. Wednesday was uh, the Madam big President, day for Senate Bill uh, 50. Today, Aaron Baldessari is with KQED's Housing Affordability Desk. They brought it to the floor. SB 50 is a thoughtful, meaningful, and serious effort to chip away and ultimately to help solve California's housing crisis or housing shortage. SB 50 would require cities to allow four to five story apartment buildings within a half mile of train stations, major bus lines, and so-called job-rich neighborhoods. Because if you can't build where the jobs and the transit are, you're just going to build further and further out. There's some provisions in there to uh, include affordable housing. There's some protections against demolishing existing tenant-occupied buildings. It's an additive bill. It is not about replacing existing communities. We've done that before. SB 50 fundamentally legalizes denser development in places where it hasn't been legalized previously. It's taken us 50 years to dig into this hole. It's going to take us time to dig out. But SB 50 will help plant the seeds so that in the future, our kids and our There was probably two, three hours of debate on it. And then it would go through six votes. Alan? No. Archuleta? Atkins? Aye. Bates? No. Bell? Aye. Borges? No. Bradford? Before it actually finally died. Was it clear who the different camps were? Like who really wanted this bill to pass and who didn't? Over the past two years, the bill has faced opposition from a bunch of different sides. But on Wednesday, it really came down to two groups. There were the local control advocates who basically want to keep planning decisions at the city, county, neighborhood level. They don't want the state to make the call for them. Right. And then there were the housing affordability and tenants' rights groups who 
believe that this bill is going to lead to more speculation, to more market rate and luxury housing, and that there aren't enough protections in there to preserve low-income neighborhoods and to build enough affordable housing. So which one of those two groups historically has had more power in state government? By far, it is the local control folks. The anti-development, anti-growth groups have dominated state housing policy since the 1970s. This is a group that, since the beginning, has been very vocal against any proposals really to increase production of housing across the state. It's a political ideology that's been entrenched in California politics since the 1970s. Why since the 1970s? Yeah, so in the 1970s, across California, there was this incredible anti-development, anti-growth movement that was essentially a backlash from the civil rights movement that proceeded in the 1960s. There was legislation passed to end discrimination in housing, and this freaked out a lot of folks. So as a response... Uh, cities across the state started passing anti-growth or downzoning bills that limited the heights of buildings in certain neighborhoods. Just using San Francisco as an example, they had um, uh, some policies that were passed in, in 1978. It limited the heights within sort of the white, wealthier neighborhoods, but in places like the Tenderloin, Chinatown, South the Market, Heights of buildings were untouched. So you really started to see this sort of use of zoning as a way to exclude people from certain neighborhoods. Following that, or around the same time, you also had an environmental movement that was aimed at limiting sprawl and limiting growth. But the California Environmental Quality Act also allowed people to sue against specific developments. Previously, you had to convince a planning commission that this development wasn't worthy. Now any individual could sue. So what that did was give a lot more power to the so-called NIMBYs that have dominated the conversation today and allowed people to use that as a tool against development. I think that this group has just been very vocal in putting pressure not only in Sacramento, but filtering all the way down to the most local of governments. Thinking about planning commissions, city councils, boards of supervisors, it really filters all the way up the chain. You know, I think a lot of people, you think about Berkeley or even Marin, might think of themselves as very liberal, very progressive, very inclusive and sort of anti-corporations and anti-big developers and big real estate. And that's really dominated a lot of the housing politics even today. If these so-called local control camps are so against more state control, then how does Senator Scott Weiner, who you know introduced this bill, justify the need for more state control over local housing decisions? In comments to reporters after the bill failed, he said, look, we, every day, every week, we ask city councils and planning commissions to walk a very politically contentious line about approving project by project uh, 
new housing and they face, you know, opposition all the time. So he was saying, look, why don't we just make it easier for them to say yes to, in his words, do the right thing and approve more housing by saying, look, we're not even going to give you the option of saying no. You have to say yes. In a lot of ways, that's a really radical idea because it challenges the way that housing planning has always been done in California and indeed across the country and most much of the country. It's it's a it's a local process. Communities that are impacted the most by development get the say in what happens in their communities. And when you say it like that, it, it sounds very reasonable. The problem is that we haven't built enough housing and that those policies have led us to where we are today, which is that it's always someone else's problem. Okay, so these local control folks were a big reason the bill failed in the Senate. They've had a lot of power in state government for a while, and they still do. But they weren't the only ones who opposed SB 50. There was another camp that sort of represents the complete opposite side of the conversation. And those are people who've historically been screwed over by the government's decisions around housing people of color and low-income folks. They were represented by affordable housing and tenants' rights groups. You would think that affordability advocates would want to see some of the dismantling of that exclusionary zoning. But on the other hand, state-led policies in the name of progress have often been used to tear apart black and brown neighborhoods, urban renewal, that we're going to stay here at Hunter's Point until you decide to give us some decent housing here for these people who are already here to live in. BART coming in. Most of the homes and businesses in this area will have to be destroyed to make room for progress. And the push of progress is not always gentle. Highways being built. Those are all things that have, you know, served to destroy a lot of black and brown neighborhoods in the Bay Area. And so I think it's right for those affordability groups and tenants' rights groups to be very skeptical of a top-down approach without them seeing um, assurances that it will actually build the type of affordable housing that will ensure that low-income people can stay in the Bay Area. What we've seen from the market already is that it has no problem building market rate and luxury housing. An analysis of housing um, that's already been built in the Bay Area demonstrated that we've built, you know, our more than enough market rate and luxury housing, but what we haven't built is low-income and moderate-income housing. And that's where we're falling short on all of our targets and all of our goals. This probably isn't the last we've heard from Senator Scott Weiner and this housing bill. And there's a really good chance we'll see some kind of major legislation back in Sacramento to deal with our housing shortage. Right after SB 50 failed, Governor Gavin Newsom made a statement saying, quote, California's housing crisis demands our state pass a historic housing production bill. Aaron Baldessari is with KQED's Housing Affordability Desk. The Bay is produced by Erica Cruz-Guevara and editor Alan Montecilio. KQED's leadership team includes Julie Kane, Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Devin Katayama. That's it for The Bay. We will talk to you next time.
Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts.